Welcome to the Smart Business Transformation Podcast, the show for people with a growth mindset that are leading transformation programs. I'm your host, Ben Ramsden, and this week we're talking to David Hales about change in organizations. Now, I wanted to speak to David because he's just got so much experience from a really wide range of situations. He's worked in blue collar and white collar environments. He's worked in Australia. He's worked overseas. He's worked for government. He's worked for private enterprise. And really, I wanted to understand the differences and similarities between those various environments when it comes to uh, leading and managing change. Now, David's a busy man, so I managed to track him down and uh, give him some lunch on what is rather a noisy street in Sydney. Um, So there's quite a lot of noises in the background, but I'm sure that won't detract from your enjoyment of our conversation. And I kicked off by talking to him about his background and history. Just looking at your profile, I believe you started uh, your career as a school teacher and then um, moved into aviation, initially in learning and development, and then you had many years of operational management roles, including as a long-haul crew manager. So you've uh, probably flown around the, uh, around the planet more times than most of us have had, have had hot dinners. You've been HR manager, you've been in the organizational change area for a while, and that's both here in Australia, but also you were in uh, Beijing and China for uh, a year and a half uh, with a transformation program there. I think since returning to Australia, you've worked for a whole variety of organisations, from government trains to major media to financial services to mining services. And on top of that, you've lectured uh, in international business and on MBA programmes. Have I captured all the sort of uh, key That's just points about it, Yeah, so I was, you know, um, showing my age there, but uh, yeah, so, so came out of teaching in 1979, so that's... That's where that's where that path took me. Primary school teaching, five years both here in New Zealand as well, uh, and then yeah, joined Qantas in 1986, and then uh, as you just described, worked my way through through Qantas and had a lot of opportunities there with them both in the project space, uh, overseas bases, uh, managing a large base in Perth as well for five years. Uh, been fortunate with the on the LND and OD side as well to combine that project work. Uh, then left uh, in uh, 2009. I mean, been solely for the last 10 years. Wow. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today because you've got such a breadth of experience across a whole range of sectors and uh, done a whole bunch of interesting things. So tell me, what, what attracted you to this whole change and transformation and culture space? It, it, probably, um, it probably came through working for Qantas, so when I joined Qantas in 1986, it was a government, federal government run uh, airline, controlled airline, um, and it was large, it was very bureaucratic, uh, you know, it, it, it flew to uh, about, about 38 destinations around the world, including 11 in Europe, uh, so it, it was it was big, it was a, it was a you know, around the world airline, flag carrier for Australia, all that sort of thing. So, uh, but only after five years or so, the, the government, uh, the Keating government, then privatised Qantas, and that led to a massive transformation change program across the business, both from, from an ownership perspective, 
uh, but also from a culture change perspective with, with, our, with our people. Uh, so, you know, frontline staff, new way of working. Uh, so I actually saw a, a lot of change take place then. Uh, we bought, you know, we, we started moving from, you know, Boeing aircraft, which was deeply rooted in our culture, to Airbus aircraft. So that, that, was a, that was a massive culture change internally, uh, both for our own staff and, and customers as well. Can, can, can you just tell us a bit more about that? I mean, to, to me, it seems a bit bizarre that that should be such a major change. But, you know, to me, it's like moving from a Holden to a, to a Ford, maybe. But, but I'm sure, from what you're describing, it's far more fundamental than that. Yeah, so if, if you think about Boeing being, you know, one of the, with Airbus being one of the largest manufacturers of aircraft in the world, they have a certain way of, you know, uh, you know, procurement and, and the whole structure around, uh, you know, design of aircraft and, you know, internal fittings and logistics and ramp considerations loading on freight that, that the business gets used to and, and uh, becomes, you know, the way of doing things. But then introducing a, a European design aircraft, such as the A330, initially then the A380, uh, you know, a, a totally different configuration different design, engines are different, uh, configuration of, of internally in the aircraft, uh, things are different. Uh, even if, from a pilot's perspective, you know, you've got a, you've got a different flight deck configuration as opposed to a joystick for, for the Airbus aircraft. So all the learning, the, the frontline uh, services had to change. Uh, and, and people thought it was heresy to, to go uh, with, with the European uh, aircraft at the time. Uh, but there was, you know, op operational reasons for that. There was cost reasons for that as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I witnessed that firsthand, and, I, and that that really sort of got me interested in, in that whole. So I was involved in the A380, uh, you know, the delivery of that aircraft uh, as a project team. So that that's the two floor that's, that's uh, the, that's massive super jumbo. Yep, yeah, that's the that's the that's the big one. Qantas uh, have got twelve of those aircraft. And uh, it, that, that really revolutionised, you know, the, the size. We had to change the way airports are built, change the way crewing operated. We have a different crew on, on an A380 as opposed to the configuration, as opposed to the 747. So all those operational considerations had to be taken into account. Different safety requirements. Uh, so uh, yeah, that, that's where I really cut my teeth on on transformational change. So I saw it firsthand. Oh wow! And, and it wasn't all hunky-dory, let me tell you. I, I, I can imagine, and I'm quite fascinated that our paths, in some way, have been similar. Or we've, uh, in that, I started my career starting for, working for a government department that was then privatised in the electricity structure, and that's um, in the electricity industry. That's what caused me to get involved in change and transformation culture was the fascination around that privatisation, everything that fell out of it. So I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't realised we had that in common. So, so what's your overall approach and philosophy to change and transformation and culture then how would you describe your approach i think the first thing about any any, any change or transformation um we need to be really crystal clear on on what is the what is the purpose so what are we what are we trying to achieve with this change and whether that's in the media or aviation or uh here in the in the mining industry service industry i'm working at the moment uh so having that clarity of purpose uh, that everyone buys into, so you know the executive, all the way down through the leadership team, down to the front line. They need to be clear about you know where we are now and, and where we need to be in the future, and, and for what reason. So I think unless you know we spell out to people the reasons why we're going through the change, 
uh, and what it will mean for them, for their jobs, for their new way of working or whatever it is, it's, it's very hard to, to, to drive or to lead that change. And in the absence of that, people will make up their own reality. They'll, they'll make up stuff. And, and that, as I've seen from my experience, will work against you unless that communication is clear and you haven't got frontline managers leading that change as well. So it's sort of reason-led is, is, is how is what yeah. I'm hearing. I think reason and leader-led. Uh, that, that's, that's, you know, I, I call us in the change space, you know, working in the shadows, so that we're like the phantom. So we need to make sure we, 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 we supply from the project perspective what those reasons are, coach the leaders up to, to step up uh, and not shirk away from, from BAU and leading the change. Uh, and that's, that's where the, the challenge happens. Right, very good. Now, I'd like to move on a bit and try and dial into some of your experiences by looking at the similarities and differences. And, and there's three different perspectives I'd, I guess I'd like to look through. The first of which is blue collar versus white collar. Um, can you share some experiences or some observations about the similarities and differences of dealing with blue collar versus white collar change? I think fundamentally they are the same uh, in regards to you know things I just mentioned before about being, being clear about the, the purpose of the change. But if I think about uh, uh, the transport uh, organisation I was with and working with a, like a depot consolidation project, so we went from 127 maintenance depots where people were in the Sydney Basin to eight. So we built eight brand new super depots. 127 to eight. To eight. And we're talking from, from uh, Katoomba to Wollongong, Kayama to, to Hamilton in the north, uh, here in, in New South Wales. So we had people, you know, people civil, people working on the track, the signals guys who does the signal work and the electricians who work on that. So they're, they're the guys in the, and, and women in the depots. <coughs> so, so the difference between blue and white collar in that instance is, I, I think, you know, pardon the French, it's, it's gotta be a no bullshit approach. You know, because these guys have, have been around for a long time, They've seen blow-ins come in with, with ideas uh, and you have to be, keep it really simple and it, basically, you know, the, the messaging and the comms need to be, you know, the, the, the old whiffem thing. So what's in it for me? So what are you, why are we doing this? What benefits going to be for me? What do I need to buy in? So we need to keep having those questions that they're asking, uh, having something ready for them to go. Because, you know, if they've been in a, in, a, in a depot, say, at Valley Heights for 30 years, they've got a garden out the front, they're, they're all, it's a very comfortable place to be, and then suddenly we come in and say, okay, guys, we're going to move now to a new depot at Lawson. Well, what's the benefit for them? You know, we need them to do basically the same work. Uh, so, you know, new facilities, new equipment, using iPads, technology, uh, making your job easier. It's not about cutting you know, making people redundant. It's about a better way of working, more efficient. The customers are expecting that, that efficiency as well. So trying to make it clear and simple for them uh, is how you have to cut through with blue collar. Because I've seen it, uh, it, it, it as soon as they, they see any, any, any sign of uh, fake or you're not delivering on what you're going to say or you going you know, contrary to what things you've told them, beforehand, because they, they're, they're smart, clever people. They mentally take notes, they'll even take notes of their own, and they'll nail you for, for things that you don't, you say you're gonna do, and you don't deliver on them. 
So to come back to your question, you know, I think it's, it's all about being consistent, being honest and upfront, truthful with, with people. If you can't do it, tell them. Be honest and upfront and straight. Uh, and, 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 and get back to people, you know, as quickly as if they ask questions, you don't know the answer, find out about it uh, and, and, and try and get them to buy in. So the only way you can do that, of course, is get them, you know, find you know, champions or whatever word you want to use, advocates, to be part of that. Because, it's, again, it's, it needs to be leader-led, someone in the business, and hopefully someone who's, uh, who's also an advocate within the business. Let's move on to our second lens, government versus private enterprise. What are, what are the similarities and differences between those two? Uh, I, I think that the first thing, the, the difference is, is the bureaucracy uh, in, in government that you need, to, you need to work through. And and that was something, one of the reasons why I wanted to go into a, a government organisation is, is just to see it for myself. And yes, there are layers particularly when you're working in, in transport, particularly now, you know, we're approaching election now, we're in caretaker mode for our current government. Um, it's just fascinating to, to watch how everything just shuts down, communication shuts down. But even to get comms, communications out, you know, for the depot project, it, there was about seven or eight sign-offs you had to go through various channels to get, get things through. So the, the time it, it would take for implementation and approvals uh, for, for certain things was, was much much slower uh, and the actual the whole movement of change is, is also slowed down because of the fact that uh, there is, is so many layers but in saying that there's I, I think particularly in transport and the example of Sydney trains they are moving you know service New South Wales is a classic example of, of, of change a fantastic change program that has, that's gone on there. Sydney trains moving from Rail Corp to now Sydney trains. There's a, there's, there's a huge difference in the way people work. The customer now is at the centre. Uh, so things have moved along. So in private enterprise, you know, it's, it's the flip side of that. It's, it's generally flat. You know, I've worked at Fairfax and, and Westpac. Generally flat structures, you know, more autonomy. Um, but in saying that then, I, I found that um, particularly in the, in the larger financial institutions I work with, there, there can be a bit of, uh, not, not so much bureaucracy, but more political machinations because of the, the, the remuneration uh, and, and the incentive programs and so on. So projects are, are really finely tuned towards those, those deliverables as they should be, you know, uh, milestones and so on. But that also drives sometimes disengagement with, with people because they get, the hard deadlines are so, so tough to achieve sometimes, almost unachievable. Uh, so you, you've got that, that that issue to deal with within change projects because people are flat chat with BAU and also project work at the same time, doing long hours, two and twelve hour days to meet their commitments and deadlines. So uh, it, it's both environments are, have their own unique challenges, but uh, yeah, private enterprise is, is that unique, lean, hungry. Yeah, uh, I might use the word aggressive, but but strong focus on on those 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 milestones. David, I'd like to move on to the third uh, lens, and that's Australia versus China. We're obviously, sat in Sydney now, and talking about all of Sydney experience, but you also worked in China for a couple of years. How do you see those two? Uh, how do you see transformation and change culture dealt differently across those two places? So that was really my first step into consulting after leaving Qantas. 
uh, to work with Air China, <clears throat> working in the corporate sales area. So uh, I met a lady when I was doing my master's, who's the general manager of the corporate sales area in, in, uh, for Air China in Beijing. And um, she wanted to, to bring the, the business into the customer world. Uh, so have her, her team much more customer focused. So you, you, you fly Air China, you know, not because of the government airline and because you get, get favours and kickbacks from, from flying them, you know, from a government perspective, but because you've got great, great service from a commercial perspective. So that was the, the focus for the, the transformation was on, on that. Uh, doing a whole lot of process mapping as well. I had a Lean Six Signal person working with me as well, so mapping all the processes uh, as well. But, but my role is really the behaviour change with the with focus on the customer. So the transformation challenge for me there was, uh, and I fell for the trap, initially made assumptions <coughs> that everyone got it. You know, I was, I was talking about the new way of working. You know, we, we would do workshops and things and talk about people were agreeing with me, saying it all makes sense. Then I would go out on the road with them to visit, you know, Nokia and uh, other large corporates, BMW in Beijing and Shanghai, and uh, I, I, I couldn't see any, any change at all. You know, when face-to-face with a, with a client, <coughs> um, just couldn't get it. But I, but I made the assumption from a cultural perspective that, that they'll disagree with you. And, and so I had to wind it right back then and check back for understanding, make sure you know we had some measures in place, clear measures around what we're trying to do, communicate that, you know, just because they're from a, a Chinese culture and English is not their first language. Don't make these these Western assumptions in, in your head. Uh, so yeah, so just slow it right down. Model. So coaching came in. So coaching was a big part of that transformation program as well. Spending a one-on-one time with people, practicing. Uh, yeah, so not setting them up for, for failure by, you know, what I think was was the right process. Like, you know, workshops, talking about it. Let's go out and now do it. Do it live. Uh, so yeah, that was a, a key learning experience for me. An experience which, and I really enjoyed working with them. Uh, they were bilingual, of course, but uh, that, that was a great opportunity, and uh, I learned a lot from working in China. Wow, I feel we could talk about that one all day, as we could with lots of things. But um, overall, what what would you say have been the the most successful and the least successful approaches that you've either adopted your, yourself or seen others adopt? Probably the most successful, uh, I think, approach is, um, I can talk about, you know, my experience with Fairfax. So Fairfax, uh, you know, going from print to digital, they're going from massive changes. And, and I, I think that project was successful because of having a, a sponsor who was clearly engaged, knew exactly what the scope was, we had our budget, uh, and uh, had total buy-in. So any support we needed, he was front and centre leading it. He would push back uh, on, on any stakeholders who uh, you know, just couldn't work with us. Um, he would give them the reasons why we're, we're doing this change. So he, he managed the politics of it really well, and that's, that's even above him. He was a group general manager at, at the time. Uh, so yeah, so having a committed sponsor in there, and, and, and I think that you know the, the business realities of, of, of the media at the time uh, was, you know, how many people how many people read a newspaper these days? So, the, so, so the Bernie platform, if you want to use that as a as a metaphor, was there. 
clearly uh, for everyone to see. Um, so having a committed and, and uh, open sponsor, having a leadership team and a project team who all knew what our briefs were. So we worked with a comms specialist, HR, training. You know, we had a really, really good team. Everyone knew what their, their roles were within that. Uh, and uh, and the measures we had for the success were, were clearly articulated from the business case all the way through the project. Had a great project manager as well uh, with it. So that having all those cogs together working, you know, that, that to me uh, is a sign of a great project. Uh, and we actually won an award uh, at, at the end of it, which was even better. We didn't. We weren't even aiming for an award, but. Um, but the way it worked, uh, it, it was just recognition of, of, of working our way through it. It was a two-year project, uh, but uh, happy to be on the part of that part of that team. Sounds lovely. Without naming or shaming, can I take you to the other end of the scale? What's uh, what's been the least least successful that you've seen or been involved with yourself? So I won't name the organisation, but uh, you'll probably guess what I'm talking about because I've already mentioned it. But uh, it, it was. We're probably the opposite of what I just described. So people were, were thrown together as a project team. Uh, we, we we didn't really have a defined scope uh, about what our, our roles were because there were multiple projects sitting within uh, each of our remits. Uh, the, the sponsor wasn't really engaged. Uh, BAU was a, was a large part of uh, her role. Uh, she didn't really like the project she was on. She didn't feel as though it was... It was right, but she was part of her KPIs was deliver on this project. Uh, so, so we, yeah, I mentioned the word fake before. So we really didn't get that buy-in from her. She didn't really believe in it in the gut that this was going to work. This was the overall leader. Yeah, the sponsor. The sponsor didn't believe. Didn't really believe. She was, you know, basically ordered that this project had to had to take place. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it just didn't it, it didn't eventuate. So, splinter groups formed. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from the business. Uh, we weren't getting support from the sponsor on, on some of those things. And, and basically for me, I, I, I was just unclear about what was the benefit. You know, what, what, why are we doing this project? We're working with which other, some other large um, e- external companies as well as part of the project. But, so none of us had, had clarity around the purpose. So it sounds like you didn't believe either, really. No, which is why I didn't stay that, that long. That was probably my shortest tenure uh, on, on a change project because I just couldn't couldn't engage with the business. Uh, I, I didn't feel supported. Uh, I wasn't clear on what the outcome was meant to be and how what the case for change was. Uh, and these, these are really difficult projects, these ones, aren't they? Because you, you you get yourself on these projects. And then you sort of discover that it's a bit like trying to put lipstick on a pig. Yeah. And um, it's like, well, I'm supposed to be, you know, the big believer in all of this in front of in front of everybody else and supporting, but it's a bit like a house of cards at times. And that's it. Uh, it was just people working against each other. So you were thinking that if we all work together and pull together and, be, and we're clear about what our, all our roles were and where the end game is, then 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 it's fine. And I, I was. I was actually speaking up. I was giving feedback about it, calling out things which were needed to happen from a comms and uh, delivery perspective, but just just couldn't get traction. Uh, and it's very frustrating as a change, a transformation leader in that environment because you're losing respect of your people. You're going through the change. 
uh, you, you know, it, it causes you, you know, you, you try and be resilient as a key trait of our space, but you're just getting pushed back and knocked back uh, all the time. And again, it just, yeah, it just wears you down. Well, thank you for giving those perspectives across those those three different lenses. Um, I'm conscious you uh, you need to get back to uh, to the day job, but there's just a couple of other things I'd like to cover before we let you go. Sure. You started life as a school teacher. Uh, you've worked in L and D. You've been a lecturer in universities. What advice or perspectives could, can you share for parents or perhaps kids today who are uh, of the age where they're going to be? Uh, in the workforce for, for a considerable length of time in the future, you know things are changing so rapidly, and yet change that change and transformation doesn't seem to be a core course called at, taught at school. Um, what would you advise people to do to set themselves up in the best possible way and to, to thrive, not survive, in the, in the current environment? I, I think the first thing is that uh, you need to have a, a lens, and it sounds a bit trite, but like, like a learning lens on the whole time. The reason why. I've, I've changed in so many roles, and I had about about eight different roles in Qantas in my time. Because I was, tr- I wanted to, I was fascinated to learn more about the area I was going into. So from teaching to Qantas, I joined Qantas as a flight attendant. You know, so I've always been fascinated about, about air travel. And I thought I'm not going to be a pilot, so that's the next best thing. So I learned all about that, and then I got that, that took me out then to L and D, then project work, and I learned uh, so much about the business when I was operating as a, as a as a manager on board at 747, you know, at the front door, learn so much about people and about customers and about delays and dealing with issues and emotions and 400 people on the plane. So I learned so much from that, which I'm, from teaching, I learned then, then flying and then project work with, with Connor. So to answer your question, it's about just finding those opportunities and any opportunities that come up, put your hand up. You may not get it, but it's another opportunity to learn uh, and, and that's why I've, I've learned so much, and that's why I'm loving the role I'm at now. I'm learning about the mining industry, uh, you know, then with, with Fairfax about media. So it, you, you can't, you know, you can go to university, yep, yeah, and that's all great, but when you're immersed in it and, and you're dealing with it on a day to day basis, hearing about the, the challenges, you know, for me that's, that's learning and it just keeps it fresh. And uh, I've, I've been very lucky, you know, in my career. Um, to have the opportunities to, 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 to do it, you know, change management. You know, you do a five-day pro-site course and you're a change manager, but um, but I think it's about, you know, treating people with respect, always thinking about the customer, uh, being able to um, be articulate about, you know, about, about what you're doing uh, and, and being open to you yourself being open to change yeah, as well. I think that's that's an important thing. I know with my three kids that you know having an open view to culture, the world, uh, and just to change in general. Uh, because we're in that age now. So, if you had your time again, what if anything would you do differently? I actually thought about this before this question um, you've asked, Dan, but I would not have changed anything. Because I've been really, I think, lucky, lucky and fortunate to, to, to be on the path that I've been in. Uh, to, you know, I, I absolutely loved my time at Qantas, 23 years there. I, I saw the world, met some fantastic people. Uh, would not have swapped that. I love my time teaching as well in New Zealand and 
Australia with with primary, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. So I'm at the tail end of my career now. Um, so uh, you know, next step for me is, is to probably uh, you know move into a into, into shorter contract roles. But I don't think I'd change anything really. It's lovely to hear. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds a bit. Uh, people think, oh yeah, really, but um, no, I've been very lucky. Well, I'm looking at you smile with that wonderful expression on your face, uh, which our listener can't see, obviously, but it's, uh, it's great to hear, great to see. So uh, thank you so much for your time today, David. If people did want to reach out to you for, for any reason, um, how can they do that? And if so, uh, would you be happy about that? And if so, how? Probably the best way is, is LinkedIn. So I'm on, on, on a LinkedIn. Uh, I've got, yeah, message me on LinkedIn. Happy to have a chat, talk to people about what I've spoken about today or, um, or or anything really. So um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best place. David Hales, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I do hope that you enjoyed hearing all the breadth of experience that David had to offer there. If this sort of thing really floats your boat and you're fascinated, then I want to suggest that you check out uh, another podcast called Conversations of Change by Dr. Jen Fram. And in particular, I suggest you listen to the most recent episode at the time of recording, episode 46, with Dr. Helen Bevan, who's Chief Transformation Officer of the National Health Service in the UK. She's, I would say, the complete opposite of David in that she's really focused on just one organisation throughout her career and transformation within that uh, that one organisation. But this is an organisation that's responsible for looking after the health of about 53 million people in uh, England, in the United Kingdom, and has a staff of over a million so it's a completely different scale and completely different sort of perspective that she brings. Um, and I think it's really interesting on that, particular episode, on that particular episode of the podcast. And anyway, Dr. Dr. Jen is such a fantastic interviewer and uh, expert in her own right on this whole field. So that's just another resource that I uh, suggest that you have a look at if you're interested. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Until we meet next time do please keep that growth mindset going.